Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm George. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the New Statesman's right power list. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our political correspondent, Freddie Hayward, and our senior editor, George Eaton. George, it's really good to have you back. Um, I think last time you came on, it was to to talk through the left power list that we did earlier this year. And you've been working really hard in the past few weeks on a right power list. Why don't you tell us why we've done this? Because we are traditionally supposed to be the magazine of the left. Absolutely. So uh, as you say, the left power list was, was published in May. And we actually intended to do a right power list all along, in part because in some ways it's a more natural exercise. The the Conservatives have been in power for more than 13 years now. They still are the governing party. And putting together a list of the 50 most powerful people in Conservative politics is a really useful way of mapping who really matters. After more than a decade of Conservative government, five prime ministers, who are the people who we we really think define right uh, politics today? And what, what do you mean by right wing? What's the criteria for someone to feature So the criteria is, I think it has to be someone who's associated with either the conservative tradition or the libertarian tradition. The conservative party, like Labour, has always been a broad church. Uh, we can get into some of the uh, some of the choices because some on some on the list are more obviously right wing than others. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start with that, shall we? Because the top spot isn't Rishi Sunak, the That's prime right. minister who could be said to be sort of the most obviously powerful um, right winger in the country. It's actually Nigel Farage. Yes. Now, what was the thinking behind that? Because we were all, Freddie, you and me, were yeah. all in that first meeting discussing who should go top. And there was a bit of debate about that, wasn't there? Yes. Yeah, so on Farage, in some ways, uh, a surprising choice. He's, he's tried and failed seven times to become an MP. He's not an elected politician now. He's lost his place in the European Parliament following Brexit. Uh, in some ways, now best known for uh, his GB News show. Yeah. But I think uh, his power has actually grown over time. So Brexit alone gives him a legacy that few post-war politicians can rival. And then who was talking about small boats, first of all? It was, it was Nigel Farage. When he used to do those uh, videos for, for GB News from the channel, watching the boats come in, he was ridiculed. Now Rishi Sunak has made this one of the government's five top priorities. Keir Starmer's talking about how Labour would address that issue. 
Uh, and then more recently on net zero. So at the start of this year, Nigel Farage was saying we should have a referendum on, on net zero, putting pressure on the government to shift its position. And now Rishi Sunak has done precisely that in uh, his recent speech. So I think in some ways, although it's Rishi Sunak who's in office, it's Nigel Farage who's in power. Mm, I'm sure number 10 were delighted when they saw <laughs> that <laughs> entry. Um, and how about King Charles, Freddie? Because I will let our listeners in on a new statesman state secret. When we were putting the left yes. power list together, he was actually a contender for that as well. And I think a lot of people may think that his politics lie more towards the liberal left side of things. Yeah, and I think we definitely made the right decision in the end. Uh, people think King Charles is left-wing potentially because of his environmentalism. They see he cares about climate change, he cares about air pollution, he's very into the countryside. And for some reason, people in the past 10 years or so have associated green politics with left-wing politics. But there is, and I think this is evident throughout the list, there is that strain of uh, conservative thinking that recognises the importance of the environment. I think um, you might say it's to do with David Cameron and, the, and his pivot to green politics at the end of the noughties, but you also see it in people like Rory Stewart, that custodian... Yeah, who's also um, on the list. Who's also on the list, that custodian, uh, warden approach to the environment. We have to look after things. We also have to maintain our voters in rural communities, uh, wealthy landowners, that sort of tradition. But then King Charles specifically, Will Lloyd wrote a brilliant piece on him back when the coronation happened. And he identifies this thing called traditionalism, which is this very vague ideology. And you see it cropping up in uh, Moscow and Steve Bannon and, and, and places like this. But it's basically a rejection of modernity in its, in its broad sense. And you basically um, replace these themes of progress with uh, themes of decline. Um, and you're trying to preserve uh, the past. And I think King Charles definitely identifies with that. Mm, yeah, there's that sort of patrician, paternalistic nature yeah. of his instincts, as we see with Rory Stewart as well, in another profile that our colleague Will Lloyd, who you mentioned, wrote recently. Um, Suella Braverman is quite high up. She's number five. She's third highest cabinet member after Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, mm. the Chancellor. Why is she up there? Because you could say that she's actually failing on her own terms as Home Secretary. Yes, so I think she's up there because of her the weight of her influence within the party and the, and, and the wider movement. So we, we'd actually put together the rankings uh, before her, her speech uh, in the US uh, this week. Which uh, we'll calling, be talking about on tomorrow's podcast. <laughs> uh, calling for uh, the, the UN Geneva Convention on, on refugees essentially to be uh, to be torn up, radically changed. But that was that was a, a, a principal example of, of of her influence where really she was departing from from collective res responsibility there number 10 mm. say they approved this speech in advance who knows the truth but the fact is she is powerful enough to depart significantly from uh ministerial lines to take because i think uh that's sunak has staked so much on being seen to be be tough on immigration it's very hard for him to to slap down someone who's going further yeah. and she undoubtedly is one of the uh, leading contenders to succeed him in the next uh, tory leadership election if you look at the tory membership uh they tend to lean right they uh elected boris johnson they elected liz truss if Rishi Sunak loses the election as expected, I don't think Conservative members will draw the conclusion that it's because uh, we were too right wing. We need to go back to the more uh, liberal uh, Cameroon era. I think they'll draw the conclusion that we weren't right wing enough. We didn't. We weren't true enough to our convictions. Uh, the message was was too muddled. And I think uh, Suella Braverman combining both that sort of fervent Brexit religion 
and a radically tougher approach to immigration and asylum will appeal to them. Mm. And of course, she was instrumental in getting Rishi Sunak over the line, wasn't she, in that second Tory leadership race when there was the threat of Boris Johnson re-entering the arena? Yes, yeah, so she has all of the influence within the party that Georgia spoke about, but she's also Home Secretary, which obviously comes with a lot of power itself. We can look at the illegal migration bill, which has radically changed um, our approach to asylum. Uh, she was obviously a key sponsor of that. She led it through. Um, of course, Rishi Sunak is also taking a very keen interest in migration. And that's part of the reason I think that she's able to step away from it a little bit and not be blamed for the boat crossings. Uh, but yeah, she has a, the, a huge amount of soft power within the party, but also this hard power that comes from the department. The Home Office is one of the, the great offices of state. So that explains why she's there. Yeah. And just lastly, on, on the politician side of things, because we do have all sorts of other figures as well. Liz Truss, number 50. Mm. Um, I suppose that's sort of understandable, given the mistakes that she made during her premiership. But she's still in there. Why is she still in there? Yes. Yeah, so I think I think in some ways uh, it's amusing to put her at number 50 when she was <laughs> prime minister. She might have been number one. She certainly was the most powerful right wing of that mini budget period. You look at the uh, the impact that had. Why is she still in there? I think it's it's because her ideas undoubtedly still have resonance within the party. I mean, to to, to, to come back to the next leadership election, I don't expect uh, the winning candidate to be saying I'd keep taxes the same or I'd raise them. They're going to be saying they'd cut them because I think that's another conclusion people will draw. So that that trust message, I also think the fact her premiership only lasted 49 days, it means she's been able to spin this narrative of betrayal that you can't say I was a failure because my ideas were never tried. It's similar to what you hear some uh, Marxists <laughs> yeah. and, and, and communists say. So she would always be able to uh, maintain this this myth that uh, trustism didn't fail. It, it, it just wasn't pro- properly tried. And Rachel Cunliffe, uh, our associate political editor, obviously regular on the podcast, wrote a very good cover story for us recently on the Trustites' plan to take back control of the party that far from uh, withdrawing, far from uh, fading into the backgrounds, they believe in their ideas more than ever. And and I think we'll, we'll help shape the next uh, leadership election. Yeah. And any of our listeners who didn't listen, we did do an episode on that very recently on that brilliant piece. Coming up after the break, we're moving away from the politicians and onto the media figures and business owners who have shaped our right power list. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Um, and there's a few other names here. Tim Davey, who is Director General of the BBC, probably one of the most powerful men in the country, right, or whatever place on the political spectrum you want to place him. He was a Tory council candidate back in the 90s, and he was also deputy chair of his local association that was in Hammersmith, I think. Yeah, I mean, the right and the left criticised the BBC for bias. Um, I think we decided essentially that the BBC has this establishment bias. Um, uh, they're often very pro-monarchy. They respect the state. They respect authority within the country as well. Uh, they might take what conservatives might call socially liberal views often, um, and that's one of the key criticisms over their coverage of Brexit and immigration and policy areas around there. But once you look at how they talk about change and radicalism and uh, moving beyond what the status quo, I think you can see actually a, a, a bias there, which means they're probably on the, on the right. 
Yeah, it, it is one of the more provocative choices. <laughs> uh, obviously, there is his 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 conservative party background. That's that that that's a matter of record. Yeah, we can discuss how much you should should read into that, but it's but it clearly means it clearly means something. And then I think if you look at Davies' tenure so far. He's he's generally been trying to take the BBC in a more, he would say, impartial direction. But often in practice, I think that supposed impartiality favours the the status quo and particularly uh, the governments of the day, which is which is obviously the Conservatives. Now, there's there's an interesting question, which is that if 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 Labour was in power, would that deference to power favour the left more? Then perhaps um, you might you might reconsider. But certainly at the moment, I think partly because of political threats to the licence fee. I mean, Tim Davies said openly that he wanted satirists to stop yes. making so many jokes about Tories and go for for other targets. The, there are, of course, other targets, but I think uh, for satirists of the day, the government's the governing party is always going to be a natural target. So it did show where his political sensitivities lie. Mm, and his tenure also coincided with new sort of social media guidelines for BBC journalists. There's been a bit of disquiet, especially among the younger staff, about you know whether or not they can attend Pride and what counts as political activity and what counts as being impartial as well. And you also saw it with the coverage of austerity as well. I think they sort of absorbed the narrative that uh, government spending is like a household and when it's not uh, it's not um, comparable to that at all. So they, I think they do the same with economic narratives as well. They don't they accept the orthodoxy, the fiscal orthodoxy, and they don't always acknowledge or explain things in a more left-wing um, economic way. Mm. Yeah, and then you've got um, Paul Marshall here. I think he's a really interesting figure. He's mm. sort of, the, I think he's described in the piece as a new conservative press baron. Mm. This is the guy who funds GB News and Unheard, an influential website. Um, he might be the next owner of the Telegraph and Spectator as well. Um, tell us a bit about him because he's not that well known. Yes, so he comes from a business background, uh, made a fortune in investments, and has has actually his political career really started in the in the Lib Dems. I think he's he's uh, someone who sympathised with the with the free markets uh, wing of the of the Lib Dems now much much smaller than perhaps it was in the in the mid noughties and now really uh, is a champion, I suppose, of what you'd see as as sort of anti woke post liberal media, which is unheard online, which is a site which obviously has big ideological influence on on the right. And then GB News, which has really established itself as a as a key player in, in in broadcasting, in the sense that I think a lot of people didn't expect the channel to to make it uh, to, to, to say two years. I mean, look at look at the ratings that Nigel Farage attracts. I mean, we point out in our entry for their chief executive, uh, Angelos uh, Frangopoulos, mm. that uh, recently its average daily ratings exceeded those. Of the BBC, Sky News, uh, and Talk TV for the for the first time. Wow. But more broadly, if if he does buy the the Telegraph and or the the Spectator, that 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 gives him significant clout because although um, newspapers are not as influential as they as they once were, the Telegraph has reinvented itself as a digital brand, which is the newspaper that that Tory members read the most. It's still it's still the Telegraph. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence entirely that they backed this trust and mm. she won. They, they were obviously huge champions for years of of Boris Johnson and more recently have been big champions of Nigel Farage. So they do count as a player and, and owning a national newspaper like that does put you both on the national stage and on the global stage in a way that uh, smaller assets don't. Yeah, and of course... If um, the Conservatives do lose the next election, these are the outlets that Tory members will be turning to to work out who to vote for in that subsequent Tory leadership election, which could change everything about the path that the Conservatives take. Um, Freddie, I wanted to ask you about Isaac Levido because you've yeah. been working on a 
piece looking inside number 10. He's an election strategist. He's sort of the heir to um, Linton Crosby, isn't he? Tell me a bit about his interview. Yeah, so he's been brought into number 10. I think he's working around one day a week. He's taking number 10 through polling at the moment. So he's going to be very influential on their campaign uh, for the next general election. He's also been very influential in the past. If you look at um, during COVID, there was even some rumours that he might... Uh, replace Dominic Cummings if Dominic Cummings got COVID as uh, chief of staff. He also came up with the um, stay at home slogan. Uh, So he's been absolutely central to Conservative Party internal politics uh, for a very long time. And as you say, Anushi is seen as the heir to Linton Crosby, this Australian strategist who started work with the Conservatives back in 2005, Mm -hmm. uh, central to uh, Boris Johnson's mayoral uh, campaigns and also the 2015 victory. So yeah, I think as we progress towards general election, you're going to see the influence of Isaac Levido rise. And I think some, I was speaking to some people who are uh, familiar with what he's thinking at the moment. And he's very happy to go for Keir Starmer, the man, I think, which is an interesting uh, development. I think lots of people within the Conservative Party see his time at the uh, Crown Prosecution Service as a vulnerability. I mean, we can debate that in another podcast, but that's interesting about where they think they need to be going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were also quite a few key figures on the list from number 10 as well. I think we should mention that in part because uh, they're, they're not that well known, particularly if you compare it to the Dominic Cummings uh, years under Boris Johnson. He was a figure in himself. He, he made news. People knew him. They don't really know Liam Booth Smith. <laughs> you don't uh, get him on protesters placards. And no offence to, <laughs> no to Liam, but no, he's just not the story as such. I mean, I think partly that's because um, Number 10 is actually quite united. Liam Booth Smith uh, worked with uh, Sunak at the Treasury. He's also taken in or brought in quite a few figures from the Treasury as well. And you've seen actually in the recent cabinet reshuffle as well, Sunak is getting quite a tight-knit, loyal group around him, uh, which means that you're not going to get lots of leaks or briefings or mm-hmm. infighting that the media learns about. So I think that's Tough for your piece. Tough for my piece, yeah. <laughs> I think tough for everyone at the moment, actually. But, um, but yeah, but good for messaging, good for discipline, a uh, good, good way to implement a plan going forward over the next year. So these, some of these key figures on number 10 are also really important. Mm. Yeah, and our listeners can you know, check out all of the figures in the list online or in the magazine. I did want to ask actually what putting this list together taught you about the state of the right, because we talked a lot about the um, influence of people who you might call left influencers online when we were doing the left power list and the sort of decline of the major columnists that, you know, you might have featured 15, 10 years ago. Did you notice similar trends in this list? Definitely. I think there are fewer traditional newspaper columnists on the list than there would have been uh, 10 years ago. And you see the rise of of new media. I've already talked about some of the uh, GB News figures on the list. There are others such as Toby Young, who's got his own his own website the daily daily skeptic he 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 does work for the spectator but his main influence is is online constantine kissin is on the list he's one of the hosts of the uh, influential right wing podcast trigonometry you do still have some more traditional newspaper figures ted verity the editor of the mail tony gallagher the editor of the times they still have influence through the stories they break uh, through the editorial positions they take but you've got fewer of the traditional gladiatorial newspaper columnists because I think it's it's online through through uh, Twitter through YouTube increasingly. The right is the for the right. It's I think it is more broadcast is is king. Mm. Uh, I think for the left, other platforms perhaps matter more. Though the left is seeking to, to close the rights advantage there. And zooming out, what else? What else did it teach me? I think 
it was a measure of how far the politics uh, of the Conservative Party have shifted in a short period of time. Let's say we'd put this list together in 2016, pre-referendum. Yeah. You would have had David Cameron and George Osborne there near the top. Osborne was Cameron's uh, air-in-waiting. Mm. After the, the referendum, the Conservative Party became the Brexit Party when it was led by um, Boris Johnson, obviously from uh, 2019 onwards. Nearly 65% of those on the list publicly backed leave, mm-hmm. including Rishi Sunak, of course. There's, there's this revealing quote from David Cameron, who at the time of the referendum said, if we've lost Rishi, we've lost the future of the party. Mm. Those words have proved quite prophetic yeah. um, because they're very few of the, the Cameroon, the Notting Hill set, those more liberal Tories in the party would have had figures like uh, Daniel Finkelstein, William Hague on the list. Now, can they come back? That's an interesting question. I think all the signs are pointing to a leader far closer to the uh, national conservative movements. And we've got some of the, the champions of that group on, on, on the list too. Where the right is still divided is economics. So you've got this clash, this tension between libertarians, free marketeers such as uh, Liz Truss, people like Robert Colville, head of the Centre for Policy Studies, and then those more interventionist status stories, people like Nick Timothy, who are quite comfortable with uh, big government. Yeah, and we're going to see that play out in the next two, three years. And it's really interesting looking at the figures who were on the candidates list uh, for the next election, people like Nick Timothy, people like uh, Rupert Harrison, uh, George Osborne's top aide, one of the architects of austerity. So that within these little battles around the country, yeah. you're seeing the fight over the broader soul of the Tory party. Yeah, and and it, I do want to mention that only nine of the 50 are women. Now, are we going to blame that on on the right rather than ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> it is it is something that I note in the in the introduction because I think it is it is very telling. Now, what what do I think this shows? I think it it shows you where power still lies on the right, that uh, the cabinet in its uh, upper levels is, is, is quite ethnically diverse. It is not particularly gender diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, we still haven't had, Rachel Rees would be the first female chancellor. You know, that's, that's telling. The deputy prime minister is Oliver Dowden. Most of Sunak's top aides are men. Uh, there is Eleanor Shawcross, the head, of the, the head of the policy unit. Most of them are, most of them are male. Most of the top editors, proprietors, Donors are, all, are also male. So there are there are powerful women on the list. Suella Braverman, Kemi Badenoch, who is another potential future leader. The Conservative Party has had three female leaders. So it's certainly, it's certainly be wrong to claim, as some might, that you know, the rights of the Conservative Party are simply dominated by mm. by men. But I think this does show there is still that. There is still that 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 gender divide in terms of who ultimately are the key power players. Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, George, and for taking us through that list. And as I say, you can find it in this week's magazine and on the website. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, just leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and George Eaton. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.